Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Night Church. Uh, we are honored that you have given us this part of your Sunday evening. We're going to try and be really um, cautious of that time. I'm going to condense a bunch of things down tonight and make it a little bit quicker than we might normally do. Um, that way we can get out and share food and everybody's brought stuff and hang out together and spend a little bit of time before everybody has to kind of shoot their own, own ways. But we are glad you're here this evening and we decided to just keep our trajectory right on on path. We're going to stay in the Gospel of John. And, and for those of you who've been here for the past two weeks, you know that we have entered into a, a really a different section in John's Gospel. We have made it to the last sort of night of the life of Christ. It was a night before he would be crucified and killed and then um, ultimately would be raised from the dead some three days later. But it's that Thursday evening where he had shared the Passover meal. He's washed the disciples' feet. We've gone through all those pieces. All of these things are going to unfold in essentially what is just a matter of hours. And that last section that we've made it to is what we call sort of the farewell discourse. It's the, the second longest recorded, uninterrupted sort of teaching of Jesus. And only a couple of people kind of chime in, and we'll see one of those today. But for the most part, it's somewhat uninterrupted, and it's the longest recorded we, discourse we have of Jesus outside of the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly enough, John's Gospel is the only one that really records it. And it starts at chapter, well, I think it starts at the end of 13. Some scholars will tell you that it starts in 14. I think it starts right there when uh, Judas Iscariot leaves the room and Jesus, Jesus begins to teach them. And it goes clean into his prayer for the disciples and for the world through 17. And it is, leads us right up to the arrest and betrayal of Jesus. And kind of what got us here is that Jesus had told the disciples that Someone was going to betray him, and he tells John that it's Judas, and Judas leaves. And then Jesus has this incredible interaction with them where he begins to tell the disciples that he's going to a place that they cannot come, and that he's leaving them with a new command. Two weeks ago we talked about it. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know you're my disciples. And, and Peter gets stuck because he hears Jesus say, I am going to a place that you cannot come. And in that same sentence, Jesus essentially says, I'm going to my father's house where there are many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you can't come now, but you will be able to come soon. But Peter is really hung up on the fact that Jesus had just told them that he's going to a place where they can't go. Now remember, these men had given up their lives for Jesus, right? They had they had left their careers and their families and all those things in fishing boats and tax collector booths. And they followed Jesus throughout the Judean countryside, through Samaria. They put their hands on outcast religiously and socially. They've engaged with the people that Jesus was engaged with. They've been threatened to be killed. Some have even been threatened to be stoned. They were all facing death for hanging out with Jesus. And now Jesus has just told them that he's going to a place that none of them can go. Instead of listening to the details of what Jesus is saying and what he said to them in the past few days, Peter gets hung up and he's like, you can't leave. I will go with you, right? And we remember this interaction where he says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. In that moment, Jesus shows Peter the truth of why he has to return to the Father and conquer sin and death. And he says, will you really, Peter, lay down your life for me? <clears throat> Before the rooster crows this morning, you will disown me three times, right? So we have that, that powerful interaction. We really looked at that la the last two weeks, and Jesus says um, to them, you know, I am, I'm going, and you, you cannot come, but you soon will come. And then last week, Brandon kind of talked about how Jesus spoke directly into their troubled hearts, and he says, do not let your hearts 
be troubled, right? He's basically telling them that he is going to be coming back and coming for them. And they know the way to the place where he's going. And Brandon spent quite a bit of time unpacking sort of the truth that's tied into that passage. We're in that exact same conversation. This time we're going to hear Thomas pipe up and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do we know the place to where you're going, right? They're all tied into this idea of Jesus is leaving. And then Jesus is going to give them one of the most profound verses we have in all of Scripture, one that all of us know, that not only show us the truth of our human condition, but our desperate need for a Savior. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 14. We're going to be in three short verses, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7 this evening. I'm going to make it pretty quick because they're really powerful claims, and there's just a couple of things I want us to hang on to, and it's going to feed our discussion um, next Sunday. So if you've got your Bible, open that up, and let's take a moment and let's pray together, and then we will open this scripture together. God, I thank you for the fact that we're gathered here this evening from every walk of life. <clears throat> I thank you that we are here from different places and perspectives, all brought together with one common unifying factor, and that is you. God, you have united us all through the person of Jesus Christ. The picture of the church is people gather together from every walk of life and every place because we are brought together for our common love and desire to worship Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we thank you that the church is that picture. And we thank you, God, that what we're experiencing in Jesus' comments about going to the Father to, to conquer death, to come and save us all, is truth for our hearts. That it reveals our deep need for our Savior and our desperate sinful condition. And every single one of us walked in this room tonight with sin and garbage in our lives. Some of us are living a lie. Some of us are trying to hide things from you. Some of us are living in mediocrity. Some of us are, are disappointed with our life. We're not content. Some of us are afraid. Some of us have anxiety. Some of us are full of fear. Some of us are going through the motions, living passionless lives. Some of us are on the brink of broken marriages. Some of us are, are on the brink of just being broken. Some of us, Lord, are barely holding these things together. But the truth is we all have these things. And God, you are a God who sets us free. And so, Lord, I pray that what we'll see in this text this evening is that all of our human condition is tied to one desperate need for you. We just need you, Jesus. So speak to our hearts tonight. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so we're right in that very same conversation. Jesus has just said this to them. Peter says, Lord, why can't we follow you right this moment? I will lay down my life for you, right? And Jesus says, you won't. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me. And then he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. And then he ends with verse 4 and 14 saying, you know the way to the place where, I'm in, where I am going. Let's look at verse 5, 6, and 7 together. Thomas says to him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? This answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know that my father you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Thomas, this time, is the one that sort of pipes up. Usually it's Peter. He kind of shoots his mouth off and speaks for the group often, and I really, really love Peter. But this time, 
Thomas kind of steps in. He's like, look, Peter, let me, let me handle this. I don't think he's hearing you right. Like, and he pipes in. He says, you've just told us that we know the place to where you're going, but you haven't told us where you're going, so how do we know the way? Which from a purely human kind of worldly standpoint is actually somewhat true if it weren't for the fact that Jesus had already told them exactly where he was going. About 30 seconds earlier and about five verses earlier, he said, I am returning to my Father, right? And I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he had essentially told them he was returning to the Father to prepare a place for, the, for them where there are many, many rooms. And he says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And Thomas, like Peter, misses some of the bigger context because they're all hung up on the idea that Jesus is leaving. You've got to imagine what these guys have walked through, right? They've walked through just the most incredible scenarios, the, the highs of highs and the lows of lows. They've all, they all know that being in Jerusalem at this moment most likely means their death. They know how much the Jewish people and leaders and influencers and Pharisees want Jesus dead. They try and even persuade Jesus not to go back to Jerusalem, but he does. They all know that being there is most likely going to end up costing them their lives. After all, they've already almost all been stoned, right? And they can't get a handle on the fact that Jesus says he's leaving. And so Thomas says, I don't think you get it, Lord. Like, you tell us we know the way, but you won't tell us we're going. So when you, where you're going, and so when you leave, what are we supposed to do? Because they've missed the entire point. And then Jesus, right, answers the question that Thomas doesn't even really know that he's asking. Right? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And it's one of the most well-known verses in all of, all of Scripture. Right? But most of us don't have any idea that it falls into this context, which is really cool. Right? But this is one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father, because that's where he told him he was going, except through me. Now, Jesus is actually answering a question that Thomas doesn't know he's asking, and it's a question that plagues all of humanity. And essentially, that question is this, how do we get out of this world, or how do we get to heaven? This is the question that Jesus is answering, and it's not really the question that Thomas is asking, but it's a question that humanity is asking. So Thomas is saying, how do we actually leave this place and find out wherever it is that you're going, because we're wrapped up in the physical. And Jesus says, you're wrapped up in the physical, but what I'm going to tell you is so much more important. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus addresses the question about our eternal security and how we get to heaven. In all my years of ministry, over the 25-ish years that I've been engaged in full-time ministry, it's the question that I've wrestled with people the most, which is, how do you get to heaven? Because under all of the things that we do, the moral sort of chases that we have and relational and going to church and trying to find the right church, all these pieces, for most of us it boils down to this idea of, right, if we're just looking at it from the pure question, is there something more to this life? Is there something more to this life here on earth? And is there a promise of something more to come? And Jesus actually addresses that very question, Right? How do you know the place? How do we get there, Thomas says. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he basically then follows that by saying, no one comes to Father except through me. And then he'll wrap up where we're going to be next week where he talks about the idea that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
And we've talked about that multiple times over the past few weeks where Jesus equates himself with the Father. Well, he's going to go off on this quite a bit next week, and so I'm going to leave that last little piece because it's going to tie into where we are. Where I want to spend my time this evening is in that 14, 6, and 7. Because in those profound claims, we have the answers to the questions that plague most of our hearts and our lives. And they're questions we know the answers to, but very, very seldom do we anchor our hearts to them. So we get four claims in there, and really it's actually two claims, because three of them are tied intrinsically together. But we have four claims, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Those are the first three claims. The second claim that he makes is that no one comes to the Father except through me. So we've got four claims, but the first three are really actually one big claim, they're tied together, and here's the reason I say that, is because... We oftentimes look at those things and we think that Jesus is saying three individual things as if they stand completely alone. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And those things are all categorically, uniquely individual, and you can remove the others and the others actually stand. And while that's kind of true, it's not actually completely true. Because if Jesus is not the truth, then he is not the life and he is certainly not the way to heaven. So if you do not believe that Jesus... And the things that he says and his claims in scripture are true, then Jesus is not life and he is not the way to the Father. So they are not altogether standalone claims. They're actually woven together in this incredible truth that says if Jesus is the truth and if Jesus is life, then he is the way to the Father as he claims. But if these things are not true, then he certainly isn't the way. So we have these sort of intrinsic, tied-together claims, and I've actually taught on this multiple times before, but they're one giant piece. And I want to keep them in mind, and if I had a lot of time, we could go into each of them individually, but I just want you to categorically put them together and understand that Jesus is making an incredible, profound claim. He's saying that the words that I have spoken and who I am are the very definition of what is true. And I have told you that I am the light of life, I am the way by which all men will see. He says that in John chapter 8. Therefore, my words are true, and I am proclaiming that I am life. And when those two things go together, I am the way to the Father. Which he's just been telling the disciples. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going back to my Father where there are many rooms. You know the way that I, how to get there. And they say, we don't know the way because you haven't told us. And he says, I am that way. Because, precisely, I am the truth and the life. So in other words, Jesus ceases to become the way to the Father if he's not the truth and the life. Now, you can mix all those words together, but that's essentially what he is saying. If I am not the truth, and I'm not the life, and I'm not the way, but if I'm both of those things, then I'm access to eternal God. And all that rolls into this incredible fourth claim, which is where I really want to spend my time this evening. And that fourth claim is so radical, and so profound, and so offensive, that it turned... 2,000 years ago of pagan, ritual, religious culture on its head, and it does the exact same thing today. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then Jesus attaches this fourth claim, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is where Christianity and cultural religious pluralism come into a head-on collision. Now, cultural religious pluralism is the idea that we can believe in a religious pluralistic idea that all roads lead to the same place. So if you're a pluralist, a religious pluralist, you believe that all these distinct 
things, religions, lead to the same place. And we are tied together by some great humanistic code of morals that if we just do the best at each of these things, whatever they are, that all of those roads essentially lead to the same God. If you're a great Muslim, it leads you to the same God that if you're a great Jew, or if you're a great Hindu, even though they believe in 13 million gods, it leads to the exact same place as if you were a good Christian or a good Mormon or a good whatever, because the reality is, is that we are united together by pluralistic humanity and not necessarily the claims of any, any one individual religion. Now, the reason the Romans hated Christians was not because they said that Jesus was the way, but because they said that Jesus was the only way. See, the Romans believed in a pantheon of gods. They were happy to have Jesus as one of those gods and their pantheon of culture, religious pluralism, right? Including the worship of Caesar. But when the Christians began to claim that there was only one way to heaven, well, religious pluralism and Christianity came into a radical head-on collision. And if you look around, even in our culture today, you will see that our culture promotes a religious pluralism that says, if you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, I essentially say we're all going to end up in the same place. So you do you and be true to that. And I'll do me and be true to that. And our religious roads will lead us to the same place. Here's the problem. You cannot follow Jesus and believe that. Now, you can follow Jesus and claim to believe that, but you're not really following Jesus. You're actually omitting the teaching of Christ and creating your own version of God that is not Jesus. So you can't claim to follow Jesus and be a religious pluralist. And here's why. Because you're doing away with the very teaching of Jesus, therefore making him not the truth. And if he's not the truth and not the life, then he's not the way. So if you pick and choose the things that you like Jesus to say, but take the uncomfortable ones and the things you don't want him to say and put those to the side, you are taking away the very truth nature of Jesus because he's a liar if these claims that he makes aren't true. And if Jesus isn't the truth, then he's not the way. So you cannot claim to follow the Jesus of Scripture and be a religious pluralist because Jesus himself right here in John 14, 7 says, there is no other way to the Father except through me. Which is the very definitions of not all roads go to heaven. If the Father, right, in heaven, God is the access of eternal life. The only access that we have, excuse me, is through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when he looks at the disciples and he says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And he had just told him he was going to return to the Father. You know the way to the place. And Thomas is hung up and Peter's hung up on the idea of ge geography. And Jesus says, I'm the way to the place that your heart really longs for. All of us are at a condition where we have been separated and isolated from God because of our sin. Our hearts long for something more and something true because we are created to have relationship with God the Father, and our hearts long for something more. And Jesus, as God's Son, is the access point to what we were created for, relationship with God the Father. And he claims it, and he says it, and he's going to follow it up by saying, if you know me, you know the Father, and if you know the Father, you know me. We are one and the same. And there is no other way to heaven except through me. Now, this is, of course, incredibly offensive because it's radically intolerant. 
right? At least that's what culture will tell us or culture will tell you. That believing in a religion that only says one way has not only eternal life, but actually, as Jesus says in John 10, 10, abundant life. Because Jesus actually makes two really radical claims. The first of those is that he claims to be the only way to heaven, God the Father. But the second radical claim that Jesus says is that he's the only way to have true abundant life, which means real life here on earth. So the claim of Christianity is not that when you die, you just go get to be in heaven and not hell. The claim of Christianity, which is so radical, is that that life begins right in this breath. The true abundant life begins now. And that, of course, is seen as radically intolerant. Because to tell anyone else they're going to not go to heaven or go to hell, of course, is radically offensive. But the truth is, that's not really what you're telling anyone. No one's telling anybody that. We're just simply saying Jesus says himself in his own claims that he's the only way to abundant life and to eternal life. You're not actually making anything up. You're not really being intolerant. You're just simply replying and saying and repeating what Jesus claimed. And as Mark 13, 13 says, all men, Jesus is saying to his disciples, will hate you because of me. The reality is, is that it's not a pretty message because it reveals the condition of every sinful human heart that we are in desperate and dying need for a savior and that Jesus was not some wandering moral teacher that wandered around the countryside saying, hey, make sure you love those that are last and the first shall be this and all those kind of topsy-turvy upside-down sayings that we all love about Christ, but that that Christ actually said that he and God are the same and the only way to the Father is through him. And to ignore those teachings is actually to ignore Christ and therefore you don't truly follow Jesus. We do not get to pick the things that we like that Jesus says and hold on to those and take the ones that we don't know what to do with and put them over here and decide we're going to follow and serve this God. This is not God. God in his entirety is made up of all the things that we'll never know, but every single statement he makes in Scripture and every single statement that falls from the lips of Christ. And right here in this moment, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Which takes religious pluralism and cultural pluralism and flips it on its head and says, there actually is only one way to eternal life. Now, here's the other side of this coin, which is really important, what I want you to hear me about. If you believe this, if I believe this, that if I believe these claims that Jesus makes are true, that what he's saying here in John 14, 6 is actually true, Right? If I believe that, if I believe that he is the only way to heaven, then I have a responsibility to actually tell the world that truth. Because if I believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, the only way to God the Father, just as he says, then that means that without Christ, the entire world is destined for destruction. There's no other way around it. Yet I know the truth. I know that it's Jesus. And that if I am more convinced or concerned about social awkwardness or the intolerance that the world will proclaim to me than I am about telling people about Jesus, then I am guilty of sinning against my neighbor. Because if I'm more afraid of social awkwardness or I'm more afraid of being labeled as intolerant as I am about telling people that they are dying without Jesus, who am I? You know, there's a viral video that went around a years ago, and, and I'll show you a piece of it that's really fascinating, and, and most of you have seen this, but it's worth seeing again. Uh, it, was, it was about Penn Jillette, who was part of the Penn and Teller um, illusion duo, right? They had a big act in Vegas and all over. I've actually seen them, believe it or not. And um, 
He's an atheist, well-known atheist, very articulate guy, smart guy, but well-known atheist. And he tells a story <clears throat> about how after his show one time, somebody came up to him, a very sane, very kind, uh, very normal guy, and he brought him a Bible. It was a Gideon's version of the New Testament that has Psalms in, in there. And he kind of goes to this whole story and talks about how Psalms is a part of the New Testament, which of course it's not. But he, he says it was all part of this thing. It was a little Gideon's Bible, and the guy brought it to him, and he says, hey man, I really, I love the show. I'm so impressed with you guys. And, and Penn talks about how complimentary this gentleman was. And he said, I brought you this Bible, and I wrote in it. Um, and I want you to have it. And Penn talks about how incredibly sane and kind and normal this guy was and how he respected people that proselytized. And the word there just simply means that wanted to make disciples of people that, of their religion. So if I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm talking about Jesus, I'm proselytizing. And he says, I have this much respect for people that do this um, because, well, I'll let you take a look at it and we'll talk about it. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. It's a picture, picture of a much bigger video, but here's essentially what he's saying, right? He's saying, I had so much respect for this gentleman to at least bring me this. And, then, and Penn is still a very well-known atheist. None of this changed his mind about the existence of God. But essentially what he says is, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal life could be theirs? That there is a heaven and there is a hell, and you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the truth that you have and you know leads to heaven. How much do you actually have to hate somebody to not want to tell them. And that if you are more convinced and concerned with the social awkwardness or being labeled as in, intolerant, how selfish is that life? And what's really powerful, of course, about that video is that it's just really true. I mean, we live in such a me-driven religious culture that we'd rather dodge the social awkwardness or the labels of intolerance than actually tell the world the words that Jesus himself said. So what are you really being labeled as? You're being labeled as someone that just says what Jesus has already said. You're not making these things up. Jesus right here says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity and cultural religious pluralism cannot coexist. They are a radical collision between truth, between truth, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and lies. And unfortunately, so many of us have allowed our lives to be swallowed by culture that we live in fear of the labels 
as opposed, as opposed to being guided by truth. Now, I'm not saying that every day you have to walk out and stand on the corner and shout everybody down. Not at all. But how much do you have to dislike the people you work with to not tell them about the God that saved you? How many years before you're going to actually tell your brother or your sister or your mother about the Jesus that has changed your life because you're afraid of their response? And as Penn would say, the impending truck is driving headlong at them. Now, I believe very concisely that everyone's eternal salvation is not your responsibility god is very much in control of all that but we have this hand and this responsibility of being faithful to the call of god and every single one of us here is called to tell the world jesus makes it incredibly clear go to all the nations telling them everything that i've told you teaching them right baptizing them so what is jesus teaching the disciples I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't and I don't get the luxury to decide what we want to share and not. To give the world a giant, warm Christian hug without talking to them about Jesus is almost useless. Our words and our proclamations have better be tied to our acts of love and service. There's a difference between social justice and mission. I was talking to Don, some others about this the other day. Social justice and fighting for the oppressed, when tied to the love of Christ, becomes mission. It becomes the heartbeat of the church. But to just love people and be divorced from the love of Christ, well, we set that ship a sail, and we miss the call of life and death. The way we love people, the way we love the broken, the way we love the marginalized, the way we love our neighbors, our sisters, our brothers, our relatives, and our children is defined by what Christ has done for us. That he has rescued us in the midst of our dying, in the midst of all of our sin and death. He has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he has told us and given us this incredible message and called us to be ambassadors of his to the entire world, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and there is no access to eternal God or abundant life on earth if it doesn't go through Jesus. So gathering together in our little Christian holy huddles and holding hands with each other and trying to maintain the church at all costs is empty if we're not willing to tell the world about the single greatest truth in all of human history, and that's that Jesus died for them for them. So who in your life do you know is God pressing on your heart that this message of hope and truth, who is that person that God is calling you to press that into? And as we close our time in worship, I want you to think about that. Do I believe this for myself and do I believe it enough to actually tell those people that God has placed right in my sphere of influence? The greatest message that's ever told. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to reiterate what most of us already know. And it's uncomfortable to hear at times. It's really hard to hear at times. Because we don't want to offend and we all are afraid we're going to push somebody away. But the truth is, in your economy, it doesn't work that way. You tell us, even as we looked at this in John 6, 44, God, you, told us, you tell us that only you draw people unto yourself. Which means we won't lead anyone to Christ and we won't push anyone away from Christ. You do all the work, but yet you use us. And you desire to use broken humanity to do the greatest things ever. And our responsibility comes in obedience. And our responsibility comes in grace. 
And our responsibility comes to do what you call us to do. And so, Father, I pray the burden that we have on our hearts for people is driven by the love that you have for us. And so, Lord, if we believe this to be true, then let us want to tell the world. Let us want to tell the person on the, end of the other pl- on the end of the other continent, and let us want to tell the person that sits across the couch from us every night or every Thursday or the person on the end of the other phone. Let us want to tell those people that Jesus is the single greatest hope for all of humanity. He's the only hope. And through him is abundant life and the promise of eternal life that begins today. You are the way. You are the truth. And you are the life. And you are the answer to Thomas' question that he doesn't even know he's asking. How do we get this eternal life? How do we end up in heaven? How do we find the Father? Only through Jesus. So Lord, hear our cries. We close our time in worship, celebrating the single fact that you rescued us in the middle of our sin and death, and you set us on a path of life by your grace and your grace alone. We ask this in Jesus' name.